Welcome to App Talk with Uptick, where we dig into the nitty gritty of how to grow apps and games. We speak with industry experts about specific strategies, tools, and tactics they use to find success, and we keep you up to date in emerging news and trends, the ever-changing marketing, games, and technology ecosystem. My name is Xander Agosta, Director of Marketing here at Uptick, and joining me today are my co-host, Warren Woodward, co-founder of Uptick. And our guest, uh, Robbie Young, CEO of Animoga Brands. Awesome, Robbie. We're incredibly excited to have you. Um, we've been keeping a close eye on Animoco Brands for a while now as we dig into Web3 space, and it's really, it's really a treat. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, man. Looking forward to this no one. No problem. No problem. Excited to be here. Great. Cool. So our first uh, segment is Industry Insights, where we do a deep dive on industry news. There's a bit of an elephant in the room this, this week, uh, as I think many people know, the, in Russia, the Russia invasion of Ukraine is something that's kind of happened on the global scale, and it seems kind of uh, disingenuous for any one. It seemed disingenuous for me in order to not address it. In the short term, I guess I won't speak for everybody else. Um, so I don't want to be on a treat. I don't do a diatribe here about anything. Um, this is a, a technology podcast, ultimately about games. But um, in the industry insight segment, I did think it would be interesting to dig into a few articles around how global tech companies are reacting to the invasion. And so I have a few a few articles, uh, three word articles, I'll touch them very, very quickly at the top. Um, and uh, we can just take it from there. First one is uh, Google is an various article entitled Google drops RT on the Russian state media from its news features. A little quote, uh, quote, uh, Google confirmed on Tuesday, it had removed state funded publishers from RT, such as RT from its news related features including Google News and search tools following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and various sanctions against Russia. Uh, Google already had restricted news companies funded by Russian government from advertising tools um, and some features on YouTube. Um, I guess I'll just like, quickly cover the other two articles. I don't really want to dig into deep, but basically there's another article on Twitter which, uh, will label reduced visibility of tweets linking to Russian state media, also from routers. Um, the gist of the article is that Twitter is doing a is basically de-emphasizing the ability for RT and Sputnik as well as other state-backed media providers um, from propagating on that platform. Um, and we'll talk about the significance of that in a second. And last but not least, uh, Facebook owner Meta says the Ukraine military and politicians were targeted in a hacking company and by hacking campaigns on Facebook. Uh, last camp sort of last article. Um, and what they've basically said is that there's been a coordinated effort across these platforms um, to target uh, Ukrainian people on, on Facebook and Facebook has taken action against them. Okay, so this is a really tough one um, because it, we sort of, ha I feel like I had to address it, but uh, on, my sur on the surface, it seems like something that's obviously good that these tech companies are taking steps to uh, clamp down on disinformation campaigns and other um, ways of that the state, the Russian state are, using uh, technology platforms to target their citizen, Ukrainian citizens. However, it does sort of raise the continued question of power and responsibility of these platforms and how these are non-state actors with significant influence. And on one hand, I sort of see these are private companies and so they should be able to act how they want. But the other hand, they're able to dictate a lot of what we see in the digital space. So, I mean, the war is tragic. I'm not in any way supporting war. Um, and it's interesting seeing the unprecedented global rebuke, but it does give us an interesting view into the centralization of power that these platforms have. So that was a lot. <laughs> I know to throw at you guys. Uh, any any initial thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, we know people don't come to, uh, you know, the, our, our podcast for kind of like our insights on, on world politics. I mean, it's it's clear that like it's, it's a tragedy um, what's happening in Ukraine right now. And it, it, it's, it's interesting to see how the Web2 community has reacted. And there's a lot of, uh, obviously, a lot of censorship and controlling of messaging here. But with, you know, I think most people would say good intentions. I think what's interesting to see too, and I'd, I'd love to get Robbie's perspective on this. Um, we've seen a very kind of different approach for how the Web3 community uh, has been acting during this period too. Um, a lot of uh, rapid, uh, you know, like I'm thinking of like Ukraine DAO um, and some of the other means that were put into place to like rapidly get resources to people in Ukraine. Um, Robbie, I'd love your your thoughts here, just sort of like how you see and would contrast like how the, you know, the legacy like Web2 community has reacted to the situation in Ukraine versus the Web3 community? Uh, so I think the Web3 community has at its disposal some, you know, different sets of tools because obviously, you know, blockchain and, and Bitcoin specifically was originally intended as a decentralized form of money. Right. Um, and so <clears throat> it actually is kind of designed for situations like this. I found it interesting to see, you know, posts from people who are fleeing Ukraine on Twitter, um, first of all, that they still are able to get on Twitter, which is amazing, um, but that um, they're saying, look, you know, I'm glad I have my my crypto because otherwise I'd have nothing, you know, because I can actually bring my crypto with me as I flee and go to Poland or go to Belarus or neighboring countries. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a big benefit, um, you know. On the other hand, I had a conversation with somebody not too long ago who advises the, the British government on counterterrorism. And um, apparently one of their big concerns is what to do with all of the Bitcoin that ISIS has in cold storage, because that's how they fund themselves. Um, so, you know, it's it's a double-edged sword. It's technology. It's a, it's a blunt instrument, and it can be used for all kinds of different purposes. Um, I think with right. the only thing that I saw that I thought was quite interesting about the Web2 community was this um, request, a letter from the Ukrainian government to Mark Zuckerberg asking him to help monitor disinformation and hacking attacks and things like that on his platform. And the fact that the Ukrainian government has to ask Mark Zuckerberg's permission, I think highlights a problem. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I think I agree. And here's the thing is I think, you know, I'm pretty big critic of Google, Facebook, um, Twitter, Apple, like all the big tech companies. But, you know, I do think they're trying to do the right thing in this situation. And it's just the question, and I think that's a good thing, right? To be very clear, I think that's important. The question is just around like, should any 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 private company have that much power? And, you know, I think it's a compelling argument that they shouldn't. Um, yes. But, but well, it, or at least be accountable to somebody in the same way that I think the media industry historically has been accountable to standards and practices and you couldn't, you know, for the, the entire childhood I spent watching television for the most part, because that's what happens when you grow up in America. Yeah. Um, right. You know, you, you can't say your product is the best on TV and an advertisement unless it's actually factually true, because right. there are rules for that. The interesting thing that, to contrast is like, you know, we have rules and law that are uphold those the, the rules that enforce television like you're talking about. And what's happening now in places like Ukraine is the rule of law is breaking down and you have then these political, you know, in with military force and you have these entities which are, you know, in some ways transnational corporations, in some ways are held to specific standards. And now they're being the ones who are asked to come and interject in these like sort of pseudo lawless states. So anyway, it's a 
pretty interesting large scale philosophy question. We don't need to dig into it now. Uh, it just seemed like a relevant thing to bring up at the top. So how about those user acquisition funnels? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't help it. It just seemed wrong to not touch on it. Don't worry, we have well, some um, happier news or more interesting topics. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, this is a good bridge article because it's it's actually you know touching heavily on on Bitcoin also, but um, more uh, directly tied to the realm of of games. Um, and uh, curious for some of Robbie's opinions here. So um, this is uh, actually a pair of articles uh, around Steam. Um, so the first one is from PC Gamer. Uh, it said 50% of Valve's Bitcoin uh, payments were fraudulent. And then there was a very short uh, interview from Eurogamer. Uh, Gabe Newell explains why Steam banned NFTs. So um, back in October, uh, Valve made a stand banning all blockchain games from Steam platform. Um, and they updated their, their policy documents to reflect the change. And uh, we know that, I believe it was like sometime in 2016 to 2017 period, there was a period of time where uh, Steam accepted Bitcoin for payment. Um, and uh, I did a little uh, research and I believe that that 50% that uh, of Bitcoin payments being fraudulent, this is referring to like this test during the 2016, 2017 period. So um, I'm just gonna read this whole quote from uh, Gabe. It's, it's uh, a little long, but I think it's, it's interesting to discuss. So this is from the Eurogame article. Um, the things that were being done were super sketchy, Newell told Eurogamer. Uh, and there was some illegal shit that was going on behind the scenes. And you're just like, yeah, this is bad. Blockchains as a technology are a great technology that the way in which they have been utilized are currently all pretty sketchy. And you sort of want to stay away from that. We have the same problem when we're accepting cryptocurrencies. 15% of the cryptocurrency paid for transactions were fraudulent, right? You look at that and you're like, well, that's bad. And then cryptocurrency volatility means that people had no idea what price they were actually paying. So they're like, how come I paid 498 US dollars for this product? And if the answer is, you know, that's what happens in a highly volatile currency. Uh, that's like today you're paying 99 cents for it. Tomorrow, you're going to pay $498 for it. And that makes people super cranky. So it just wasn't a good method. The people who are currently active in the space are not usually good actors. So <laughs> Gabe coming out pretty hard here. What do you think, Ravi? Does this make you regret all of your life decisions and, and all of Animoca's business decisions? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, yeah obviously, uh, you know, Gabe has a, a and Valve have a, have an interest here too. You know, I mean, my my first thought is like I'm I'm sure it has nothing to do with uh, the how hard it is to apply platform fees to you know blockchain transactions. You know, and and Valve has their thirty percent fee they normally apply. Um, well, do and you, I think it's think, also, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say it's, I think if that's the concern, it's very short-sighted because, <clears throat> because I think it's, you know, a lot of people when they first thought of the idea of being able to have blockchain games and essentially be able to have built-in payment mechanisms, one of the first things that occurred to people in the game industry was, oh, does that mean that we don't have to pay platform fees anymore? And <clears throat> And as horrible and as as alluring as that sounds, honestly, it's not platform fees that make or break games, right? It's not like all games would be profitable, highly successful if it wasn't for those damn platform fees, because at the end of the day, people who make games that make money know that the platforms provide a valuable service for which they pay. And I would more than happily pay a platform fee every day of the week if it gives me great distribution. That's that's the bargain. 
right? And I, we can debate all day long whether 30% is the right number, right? Maybe 15% would but... be a nicer number, yeah. but, but that's, that's splitting hairs. The point is that a platform fee is earned. It just depends on the scale of it. Um, and I think that what we're seeing here is perhaps a knee-jerk reaction to the concern over platform fees as an existential threat. Um, but I think more so we're just seeing kind of the, what I want to say, a typical um, conservative response to change, because we saw sure. the same thing when premium games went to freemium. I mean, mm -hmm. oh my God, you thought that the earth was going to implode when freemium came along. And then even worse was the dreaded mobile. Can you imagine playing a game on a phone on that oh tiny God. screen? Who would want to do that, right? Apparently 5 billion people. Um, so I think it's, it's just the game industry for all its cutting edge technology is quite conservative at heart. Um, and it sometimes struggles on the margins to embrace change. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen similar things on your end, Robbie, but I mean, we're, you know, we've been working closely with um, you know, the, the Axie Infinity team getting ready for their launch for, for Origins, right? So uh, part, of, part of the Animoca family, of course. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we've been meeting with uh, the platforms and having these discussions with how we can bring uh, Axie to these platforms. And it's not that they don't see the, the future and that it's sort of inevitable that they're going to have to work with this segment of gaming. It's, it just really feels like they're getting a bit of a late start. And so mm -hmm. they're trying to shoehorn it into the existing models. Um, and it just seems like it's going to take some time. Um, and obviously, they have to build a new business model to work with, like, a marketplace structure to be educated and understand that, like, if I, uh, you know, if I buy an Axie, I'm not actually buying it from from Sky Mavis. I'm buying it from from Robbie, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, the developer is only taking you know five percent of that. So you you can't tax that transaction at thirty percent, for example. Mm -hmm. So we're just finding that there's a lot of education that needs to be done at the the highest level, and um, trying to be patient and work in kind of transparency with these platforms and hope that we can kind of chart a path to bring these games to market in a, a legitimate way and kind of show the value of this segment. But it's going to take yeah. time. Although I think, I mean, frankly, if you want to go all macro, I, I think the evolution of capitalism has continued to be one of, you know, increasing market share and and diminishing margins I mean, in, across every product and industry in the world. I mean, it's astounding to me that the cost of an airline ticket from place to place is still roughly what it was when I was a student. And that was, you know, 40 years, 30 years ago. <laughs> and, and the fact that that hasn't changed on the surface is remarkable. Well, and it's, there's a, there's sort of an entrenched oligopoly there, right? Like, cause you need regulations in order to fly airplanes more or less. And yep. so look at, you know, it's, that's not true of Amazon necessarily, uh, or, you know, I guess legit, you know, physical goods logistics, which is how you get the Amazon business model. I mean, yeah. like the margins for games are also getting you know crushed in many cases. Okay, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think it's a really reasonable way to pivot to our main topic, uh, where we're going to talk about Animoca brands. You know, I guess just to kick it off, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, Robbie, and your background sure. and what Animoca brands is? Sure. Um, so I've not been a. I mean, I've I've always played games, but I've I've been in the game industry for the for the last decade or so. Um, previous to that, I was um, I spent a decade in traditional media, ad supported media, magazines, TV, outdoor radio, um, and then. I spent um, a fair bit of time in telecoms and the web back in the 90s when, when, when it was kind of a new thing. Um, and <clears throat> I think after, you know, 
25 years in tech, one of the things that I love about gaming is it seems kind of like the convergence of, of pretty much everything I'd ever done across telecoms, media, and technology, because you get a little bit of all of that in a mobile game, frankly. Right. Um, and, and that was what attracted me to the sector. Um, and about five years ago, um, we decided to pivot from being a mobile free-to-play studio into focusing on blockchain games, which was, you know, the, the, the concept was platform agnostic, so we could still embrace mobile in, right. in one way or another. Um, but it also, you know, taught us to learn a little bit more about building games on the web um, and, and for sort of PC console platforms, um, which we'd only dabbled in previously. And I think this has been a, you know, it's been a fantastic renaissance for us, but at the same time, a continued, a continued uh, flexing of those startup muscles because we've always acted like a hungry startup throughout our time. Um, and even though we've had some modest success over the past couple of years in the blockchain game space, um, you know, as, as we like to remind people, we're still in the same office space that we rented literally 20 years ago. Um, so it's not exactly an overnight success story. Um, sure. You got you to gotta plug away at these things. And um, <clears throat> so since we entered blockchain gaming, um, we have a studio business where we make games across a number of different content verticals. We've got studios around the world now with lots of great creative teams. Um, we grow that ecosystem largely through M&A at the moment um, and add more teams and more titles. Um, and at the same time, we also have an investing initiative. So we do a lot of strategic investing off the balance sheet. And, and I think we end up getting more sort of press ink for that just because of the frequency of our investment activity um because it you know as you guys know to make great games takes a while it does yeah i mean talk about being ahead of the curve for adoption of web3 games i mean five years ago i think basically no one i mean crypto kitties was five years ago. was that right yes yeah. yep. <laughs> like basically so we, no one... we we partnered with with what was then called axiom labs so we um Axiom Zen. So we uh, we published CryptoKitties in Greater China. So that was that was kind of our gateway drug, and I think that experience quickly cemented our view that that this was going to be this was going to be something. Right. I don't know that we ever expected that it would be everything, but it was going to be something. That's a, the everything question is an interesting one. I think we could have an interesting debate about how how big Web three is going to get, um, or in terms how much gaming is going to be transacted on Web. How much of gaming revenue is going to be transacted on Web three? I'd be very interested to hear your to your thoughts there. But I guess like to that one point, um, I mean, you have one of the most diverse portfolios of basically any Web three company in the world: MetaMask, OpenSea, Axie Infinity, CryptoKitties, the Sandbox. You have a number of in house games. Can you? I mean, feel free to throw throw in a few other ones that I missed. Mm -hmm. um, what is the core thesis around your about around <clears throat> the global adoption for Web three? Sure. I mean, I think the thesis is twofold. One is we think it. We think everything will run on blockchain eventually, and it will just become part of the plumbing of the internet. Um, so I think in the same way that we no longer talk about games as being online games, for example, um, we won't talk about them being blockchain games either because all games will use blockchain in, in some fashion um, before too long. Um, I think the debate there is really just a matter of when and not if. Um, and uh, for our sort of corporate philosophy, we believe in an open and multi-chain ecosystem. And so we very much build our product portfolio as well as our investing activity to support that open ecosystem. Um, and so we invest across 
you know, every blockchain, every platform, uh, you know, across the ecosystem, we invest in multiple wallet providers because it's not about picking winners. The beauty of Web3 is interoperability and the fact that everybody can actually work together and partner together. And that creates network effects. And those network effects are the most powerful force that we have, I think, um, as a benefit of Web3 because <clears throat> we can see incredible things happen. Take Axie Infinity, for example. You know, Axie has been so incredibly successful, you know, accidentally in, in the Philippines, if you know that story. Mm -hmm. um, and the funny thing is that we have a, you know, we have a motorsports game that's been out for a while called um, F1 Delta Time, a Formula One game. Yeah. And one of our biggest player bases is in the Philippines. We've never spent a dollar of marketing there. We never did anything in the Philippines. So why are a bunch of people in the Philippines playing F1 Delta Time? Well, because they were playing Axie Infinity and they made money. And then once they made money, they started looking around for other blockchain games to play so they could spend their crypto. And lo and behold, they found our games. So you know, we were the unexpected beneficiaries of the growth in an adjacent ecosystem within our sector. And I think those are the kind of network effects that we can all benefit from. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well put. Um, yeah, and it, it, it can't really be um, overstated, like the, the breadth of uh, Anaboka's influence in the space currently. It's it's almost like when I'm researching upcoming games, if I don't see the Anamoka badge of approval on something at this point, <laughs> I get a little bit worried. <laughs> um, Robbie, you said something interesting, which is that you expect to see the bulk of the game's economy move to on-chain ecosystems. Um, yes. Uh, my 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 personal bet and sort of like like our team's thesis for this next this next era is that it's going to be winners that are hybrids of the ease of onboarding of free to play with the kind of like robustness and, and joy that can be found in the strength of community of uh, web three gaming that you know that a plus b is going to be the secret sauce of this this era. Now, I'm curious if you also with with your own background in mobile mm. and, and free to play, do you also kind of anticipate those hybrid apps will be um, uh, important for this next period, or do you see that it's just sort of like a stepping stone to, but but eventually everything's going to be fully on chain? Like, do you see pre to play having a role, important role in this next phase of of gaming? Yeah, I think there is. I think there's going to be a there's going to be a two tiered system for a little while, um, just because I well, I think there's going to be a variety of products actually, because you're going to continue to see people building crypto first products because the crypto community has a lot of gamers within it. And that's how, that's how gaming started on blockchain. Um, and so I think you'll continue to see some of those more hardcore products where the um, kind of DeFi mechanics, the GameFi style stuff um, takes precedent. And I think you're going to see a lot of people coming from free to play thinking, how can I essentially how, how can I transition so that I still have my, my sort of free tier of users, mass users that are doing this in a web two fashion, but my whales are essentially now all crypto. And, and I've seen many, many people at the moment trying to work out that model. Um, yeah. But I do think that the onboarding sort of faff is a bit of a red herring because I think frankly, it's just a product of the fact that we've become so lulled into complacency with our centralized platforms. You know, everybody picks up their smartphone now and it takes one click to download and two clicks to purchase. 
and they're oh, like yeah. oh that's so easy how can how can i ever do you know more than three clicks well do you remember when you first had to register your credit card to get a google play account or an itunes account it was horrible it was literally horrible and and you were lucky if it worked the first time around um but the fact that we did it a decade ago means everybody's forgotten because well, so you, yeah. they've had all our information for so long that now we no longer need to do that again. But if you compare that process to opening a MetaMask account, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it's true. I mean, I think yeah, we. Ha I agree with what you said, but you have to admit that at least in the current state, like you know, we've we've all gotten quite lazy because we can just smash the get button and yep. and have the app on our phone and be playing in thirty seconds, but. Uh, contrasting that to like, I was trying to share with Xander like a game that I'd been playing a lot called called Crypto Raiders recently. That's like on on Polygon, and so like that that had to like get on a video screen sharing <clears throat> call with him and like walk him through like steps one, two, three, four, five. And it, 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 the the pain for like a new user, even someone who's already in the crypto ecosystem, for like coming on a new chain uh, and uh, you know uh, getting the initial assets to play with, it's it's not smooth to say the least. So there's, mm -hmm. there's just like, a, there's a huge gap in between. And, and I wonder what you think will be like the most meaningful steps we can take to, to close that gap if it's not a, a free to play on ramp. I think the other thing that, the other thing that is happening right now is there are a lot of companies that are working on figuring out how to build those bridges and how to build those on ramps. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are happening through payment gateway providers. Um, some of them, are, some of it's happening around people building custodial wallet systems. Um, and some of it is happening by the chains themselves. Because I think one thing that's really important for, for layer one and layer two chains is being able to build those bridges because um, they want to benefit from liquidity. And while it's nice you know, for the leader and, you know, the leader can decide not to share because they've got lots of liquidity. In this case, perhaps that's Ethereum. Um, but otherwise, everybody else needs to be in that sharing mentality because it's what makes sense. Um, and so I think we're seeing a lot of those bridging solutions already taking shape. And and I think in fairness, you know, the 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 light bulb really only turned on for this industry in terms of entertainment content once NBA Top Shot took off. True. You said something a little while ago, which I've just been like unable to get out of my head, which is that you basically think at some point in the reasonably near future, maybe you didn't say that part, at some point mm -hmm. it's going to be like, um, you know, blockchains all the way down. So basically every game is going to be some sort of yes. on the blockchain in some ways. When I think about that uh, compared to, are you thinking about like online games or are you thinking about <clears throat> all games? Because like, all I, games. I'm a, I love indie games. I play a bunch of weird indie games. A lot of them are like one, one person dev studios. Um, they have no interaction with anything outside, whatever the heck they are. Um, mm -hmm. Do you imagine that at some point that even those games where it's like one person dev team are going to be somehow integrated with the blockchain? Yes, because I think if you think about it at its most rudimentary level, the idea of what we're offering to consumers is basically just a better way of what they already do. So we're suggesting to them that you go and you spend money, let's just call it that, um, for in-game currency, and then your in-game currency buys you items in the game. And in the blockchain world, we're suggesting exactly the same thing. It's just that your in-game currency is a tokenized fungible ERC-20, most likely, yeah. and, uh, and your in-game items are NFTs. But we're not ask, asking you to have any differentiation in your experience. And that was, that was kind of the light bulb moment for us when we first got into the sector, because we're like, oh, so we're just going to ask consumers to do exactly the same thing they already do, but offer them more benefit as a result, and it's more secure. 
Um, and then you think about, well, okay, what are they going to, why would they want to own this stuff? Well, it might not always increase in value. I think this is one of the areas that's the bone of a lot of contention, because if you fundamentally go into it thinking, oh, the value of all this stuff is going to go up, well, then you're making a flawed assumption from day one. I think the, I think the beautiful assumption from day one is the value of all this stuff doesn't immediately go to zero the moment I buy it. Right. I think that's a better assumption because right. I think what happens in the, in, with the idea of ownership is that you create the opportunity for a secondhand market. And if we think of it not as a marketplace, but you think of it as a secondhand market where you can sell your stuff and not lose your shirt, um, and somebody else new to the system can buy something cheaper and try it out, well, that sounds an awful lot like when I used to sell cartridges <laughs> for my console um, and then and essentially recycle them. And this is just the digital version of that. So I think that's going to be a big part of the transactional part of the ecosystem. And there will be this niche tier of super rare, valuable content that, you know, will be highly desirable. And there's already that in existing, you know, MMOs and stuff like that. Right. That's sort of like a cruel irony of some of the uh, existing policy around um, free-to-play gaming. It's like, um, we've all agreed that someone can make a $99 IAP that is instantly mm -hmm. worth zero in a black hole of money. But yep. uh, if there is a chance that they would be able to later resell that asset for a non-zero amount of money, then for some reason, that's something that we've all agreed we're uncomfortable <laughs> with in mainstream gaming, you know? <laughs> and that's that's adding uh, too much risk to the user. So it's it's a yes. little funky, the corner that we've like talked ourselves into. Well, yes. I was thinking more about like the, the indie developer who's sending the games for ten dollars, and that's the whole thing. There's no IPs where you're just playing. You're purchasing a one-time game. I think the point you were making was that like, okay, well then they can resell it, and I think the nice thing about being an NFT is they could get a cut of the resale and potentially. But then does that undercut their ability to earn as an indie developer? Well, it's not also for the for that indie developer as you're talking about the what NFTs also can do, of course, is um, a game can be an NFT. So right, that, well, that's we can, what I was thinking of. Basically. We can we can go back to a premium game model for those who want to, because now they have the ability to securely sell individual games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's the same for you, Robbie. But I have some NFTs that are just software licenses for different tools that I use. Basically, that's just yep. another use case. We we still the cultural conversation is still too much around like NFT equals JPEG uh, hmm. to like yes. understand some of the broader and more interesting use cases. Um, one thing I did a question around is like, how are you thinking about timeline? You know, I know you might have mm -hmm. one of the best positions to answer this question out of anyone, which is like, what do you think the realistic, what what are what is the timeline for adoption? And then like, what, if any, are the key checkpoints along that timeline uh, for adoption? So I think, I guess the question is what you mean by adoption. So I mean, are oh, you, when, you, when you say adoption, are you talking of hundreds of millions of people? I guess thinking when the average consumer uh, is able to interface with the Web three ecosystem with and will and and actually does that, you know, in in a way that's like you know the predominant way of interacting with uh, game te game technology. Oh, predominant! I'd say that would have to be a three to five year timeline. Really, but that's fast. You think that really it's going to happen yeah. that quickly? Um, because I think the major the major impasse at the moment is going to be scaling and throughput, and figuring out those scaling solutions to be able to just run enough transactions, depending on how much of your game data is on chain. That's the main problem, honestly. Yeah. 
No, it's it's a good point, and and there's we're we're trying to study a lot of areas related to that too for for our own business of growing games. Um, there's obviously some very interesting complexity that's added when you have um, on-chain economies uh, in addition to like a free-to-play economy. Like, how can you how can you measure that accurately? Um, how can you you know uh, some of some of the titles we manage now we're you know investing you know million dollars, $2 million a month in growing, but we can be confident in that because you can clearly see all of the data from like a traditional MMP. So that's that's been a super interesting area for us to research is like the, you know, the scaling of the growth aspect and the, the measurement of that. So like you can be confident in joining these like two disparate economies together. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's gonna be very interesting to see if, uh, if we can get a breakthrough in in that end and kind of build the first proof of concept of sustainable growth, measured growth uh, of a Web3 game or a hybrid game. Um, that's definitely like one of our personal goals for the next year or so of, of Uptick's work. Well, and I think also you're going to see this year a lot more advertising models um, right. because most of the games in the Web3 space have been very much focused on pure, you know, um, uh, NFT driven sales driven monetization yeah. as opposed to advertising. Yeah, it's been that first stage of growth of growing kind of within the crypto ecosystem. Yep. But uh, very few have actually kind of started scratching the surface of how do you actually get these games uh, in front of a mainstream gamer and um, uh, just getting them accepted as fun and great games, not not like with the like NFT or crypto prefix on them, uh, that asterisk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the piece I'm waiting for. Is like what you because if the premise is like it needs to be the question was what's the majority? You said the answer the majority will happen in three to five years. It seems like there'd be a bit of a delay because like when do you think the like there's going to need to be a release of a significant number of these games first that then has adoption and then at some point you're going to have a reorientation of traditional developers who are like oh this is the way to do it we have to do it this way and, and there's a lot of people who are taking this like initiative to try and get ahead of this but it seems like. Even even with that, a lot of them are going to get this wrong, right? And so I, my thesis, maybe this is completely incorrect, is that the vast majority of people who are investing heavily in Web3 gaming, tech, uh, in developing Web3 games today are not going to get it right and are going to die. And that's because most games are not going to get it right and most games die. Yeah, which is just like all games. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, but the point I was making is like, I feel like there needs to be some sort of breakout hit that proves the model, that, that drives mainstream user adoption so that everyone's doing it. And then at some point... I don't know what the delay on well, is that is on that, which then you see well, much people co- copying the model. Let's ask a more specific question. This the first breakout game we get. Um, do you guys think that it's going to come from a Web three native company that breaks through to mainstream audience, or is it going to be from you know we see companies mm. like uh, like Jam City and Scopely uh, that are starting to dabble sure. uh, or more than dabble in Web three, and who is more likely to break through, like coming from within and 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 adding that Web three spice or or you know, breaking through from the outside, would, would you predict that, I guess, Robbie? I guess the question there also is how you define breakthrough. So obviously, mm-hmm. Axie Infinity produced more revenue than any game in history. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you account trading volume. Um, right. And so I think that's a reasonable breakthrough. I think if it's in terms of sheer weight of user numbers, then that means, number one, it's got to be on mobile. Um, and number two, it's most likely going to be casual. Um, and so I think in that case... You're going to think about different kinds of models. And I think the people who are going to enable that ultimately are the middleware providers. And you've got a bunch of people out in the market now 
um, you know, like Forte, for example, um, competing to design products that are basically, you know, shrink wrapping blockchain in, into an SDK. Um, and, and so I think that you're going to start to see the fruits of some of those labors. I don't know how much this year. I mean, you'll still see it, but it's not, it's going to be scant on the ground in this calendar year. Um, but I think give it, you know, one more year and you're going to see a lot of stuff because I was at Pocket Gamer a couple of weeks ago and um, here in London. And I don't know, maybe it's just the conversations I'm having, but I didn't, I didn't have any conversations with anybody that did not involve questions and discussion of Web3. And I hear the same from other people, particularly investors, uh, or sorry, companies who are pitching new projects. And they're like, yeah. every investor asks me, what's our Web3 strategy? Yeah. Well, but, and uh, my question is like, is this, how, how much is this the adoption of free to play, like freemium from premium, or how much is this like esports? Right. Cause remember, you know, six years ago, everyone needed an esports strategy, six, 10 years ago, and everyone invested in it. And you couldn't talk about launching a game to a mass multiplayer audience and not have it. And now it's like, yeah. you're talking about esports. Right. <laughs> no, no one. I think, um, I think it's because what's happened over the last couple of years between, you know, a reasonable handful of games that have been successful and kind of proven the model out. I think that the we've seen a huge force of gravity of the investment community backing projects. So I think you're going to see the fruits of those investments over the course of the second half of this year. There are going to be a lot of games coming out that got funded last summer. Um, and I think that there's a general consensus, you know, which you guys know, once you start to look into blockchain and Web3 and you really start to dig and you try it out, you never go back, right? Because something clicks eventually when you get it, but it is a bit of a religious conversion, right? Yep. It's one of those things that it's like, it's like home ownership. And it's one of those things that if you, if you've rented your entire life, you cannot explain to somebody who's rented their entire life, what it means to own their own home, because it's just not something they've experienced. But the moment you have the luxury to do that, you look back at your life renting and you think, why did I rent for all those years? That was stupid um, because ownership is so logical. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I totally agree with that on a premise level. I think the, so for me, like I'm a gamer for, through and through. And I think that the thing that I'm still missing to go all in on Web3 is I still love the gaming experiences that exist outside of Web3. And there aren't a ton of gaming experiences that are creating yeah, the kind of experiences completely. I want in Web3. Sure. And that, that's that's the piece that as a gamer, I need that first and foremost. Yeah. And, so, and I think to pour money into the system. Like, trust me, yeah. I'll spend they're they're coming there. though, right? They're coming. Well, and, like, and I'm going to it for yeah. a year. And, and I, think, I think the thing is that those kind of experiences are coming. And I think that the key is to think about what mobile was like back in 2011, right? Please no. Um, <laughs> well, because because it takes time. And yeah, what happened right. with mobile and the reason that the reason that we had that Angry Birds moment was because Rovio embraced the new medium and and figured out a way to make the swiping and the the interactivity of right. the touch screen. Um, gamer friendly by changing the paradigm a little bit. Remember when we when we had on-screen joysticks yes, and how right. horrible that right. was on mobile because the old paradigm didn't quite work. And and so I think we're in that awkward teenager phase right now in Web three where people are 
getting used to some of these new tools and trying to figure out what can be done with them and what does it mean you know to have interoperability between multiple metaverses and to be able to bring my stuff across and so you're going to see a lot of crazy stuff you know coming right. out over the next year it but people will start to make standards and these things will happen. It just, it, it's happening organically. Um, you know, the great, I, the, I was part of an incredible conversation a few weeks ago with a bunch of other blockchain game companies. Um, and we were all on a zoom talking about um, whether we as a, as a group of companies could start to, you know, figure out to how to create some standards. Um, <clears throat> and and it was a very honest conversation, as most in Web3 are. And, and so somebody said, so has anybody on the call ever been involved in creating industry <laughs> standards before? Um, and, um, and then the reply was, well, in the tech business, basically, one company gets all the market share, and then they ram the standards down everybody's throats. Right. That's how it works. <laughs> and we all laughed. And then, and then there was a silence. And we realized, well, yeah, there's no democracy for standards in tech. But now we're trying to figure out how that would work because that's what Web3 right. is all about. Like HTTP yeah. and WWW were like the last standards, right? And like that was quite a while ago. Yeah, but exactly. I, Facebook I think connects, part of, right? Part, part of why uh, Web3 gaming has a bit of a stigma against it currently is we're seeing the same thing that we saw early, early in mobile to, you know, to your point, Robbie, where what comes to market the fastest, you know, it's it, what can you spin up overnight, basically? And for better or for worse, like like there, we are in a bit of a cash grab phase with the amount of funding going to any Web three games. But at the same time, you know, I see the banner behind you for for Blowfish, an amazing mm -hmm. studio. Uh, the, you know, they're building this game called Phantom Galaxies, which I think is a clear like AAA quality game. Um, mm -hmm. I got to, got to play the alpha and like as, but those games aren't built overnight, right? These are the games no. that uh, and, similar and don't to forget that yeah yeah Phantom Go Galaxies ahead. has been in development for two years which exactly. is how long yeah. it takes to make a game like that. Exactly. Um, so I just encourage people to be patient and realize like a lot of the coolest stuff is being built right now, but we're not going to have our hands on it for, for a little while still. But you can still yes. see those works in progress. You can you know, become involved in those communities. Well, and I think the thing about Web3 that's so exciting for game developers and what more game, what many have embraced, but more should be excited about is the idea that we've also been able to sort of deconstruct the model of how you make and fund a game. <clears throat> because now that content is decoupled from play, play experience, um, you're able to start building community around content sales in advance of launching your game. So you don't just have to go and find some incredibly massive sum of money and then put your head down for two years and hope that everything turns out okay. You can actually start building a relationship with your customers you know, from your first NFT drop three weeks after, you know, hiring a developer, that's, that's pretty cool, right? And it, and it, and the idea of being able to iterate your content based on feedback from your discord before the game launches, so that actually it's what your customers want. That's pretty cool. I think in the cases of a good actor, it's great. I think one of the things that is the uh, unfortunate reality of, you know, much game development, um, and I think is applicable here too, is that like one, Games are hard to make and not every game that is developed gets launched. And so if you're pre-selling content and doesn't set, and the game never comes out, that's kind of a rug pull. That, that kind of sucks. That has happened mm -hmm. and will continue to happen. Um, what was the other point I was gonna make? I don't know. Anyway, I lost it. Anyway, there was a point you you um, you had made quite a while ago around Forte and how sort of the infrastructure mm -hmm. of 
the core of Web3 is being built now. And we expect to see SDKs drop next year and a lot of these other pieces that are sort of falling mm -hmm. in place next year. I want to ask around how does Animoca Brands view Web3 infrastructure as part of their business? So do you see that it, the in infrastructure investments is like a core of the Animoca Brands business? Or is it ancillary to games? Or like, how do those two interact in terms of how you think about your company? Sure. We, we make plenty of infrastructure investments, what we call ecosystem investments, because that's sure. really important. Um, because, and, and we've we invested in Forte, we invested in a number of companies that provide tool sets um, and help to onboard people because our mission is to onboard people to blockchain through games. Um, and so whatever companies and tool sets can assist in making that happen, the faster and on the more mass scale, the better. Um, because what what we've done in designing our business model is essentially we've we've invested across the ecosystem, and so we've made it in, in you know in our own best interest to encourage the growth of the ecosystem. Because if blockchain gaming survives, then we will do well, and so we don't have to play favorites or anything. We just want everything to grow, grow, grow. That makes sense, Robbie. On, on that note, what is um. What is Animoca's philosophy on uh, within your entire portfolio? It seems like mm -hmm. there's not a lot of centralized resources. I mean, but maybe first of all, correct my assumption if, if that's that's wrong, but it seems like there's a high culture of um, uh, autonomy between all mm -hmm. of the different entities, collaboration, but not necessarily like centralization of resources that you might see in like a more traditional uh, publisher or maybe, um, you yep. know, yeah. It, would you like to share some of the, the strategy sure. and thoughts around so that? So I think I think we do take the federated studio model approach, like some other players in the industry, you know, like Stillfront or MTG or um, Embracer, and right. um, and we do that because I think we also share a philosophy, perhaps that they have that um, there are a lot of great game studios out there um, that make games at relatively small scale, um, you know, teams of. 10, 20, 30, 40 people that make incredible games. Um, and they don't necessarily need to be bigger. Um, but one of the things that's difficult to do when you're that size is to do everything involved in running a game's business. And right. so we find lots of great studios. You know, If you have 25 people, it's very hard to have a UA and monetization team and a marketing team and you know in-house counsel and a finance team and HR and all that stuff just you know ends up eating time of founders and other people who have to wear multiple hats um, and so what we try to do in terms of centralization is centralize some of those services some of those non-game development services let's call them um, and that then all the studios can benefit from and obviously some of the bigger studios you know sandbox the, the team is enormous now so we don't they don't need to rely on us so much for those kind of things um, but for the other studios yes we centralize those types of things so that we can sort of release the founders back into the wild to go back and, and write code and develop games um, because I can't tell you how many founders I've met who spend the majority of their time doing things that are not game development, right. <laughs> even though that's why they started the business, just because, you know, being an entrepreneur is hard. Yeah, so it sounds like the plan is to continue to give like high amounts of autonomy uh, from a development standpoint. Um, but you touched on, obviously, our team is thinking about growth and user acquisition. It's mm -hmm. its the core of, of what we do. Um, it, it's, is that an area where it sounds like at some point you might want to, or do you have, or do you plan to have more centralized, like shared resources for that? 
Uh, yes, uh, we we do have <clears throat> we have shared resources for that, and also we and also we try to centralize that for the purpose of um, partner relationships as well, and that yeah. way we can partner with uh, external providers on a group basis. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The interesting thing about your position, uh, Santa Mocha Brand, is that because it's uh, all on the blockchain predominantly. Uh, the ability to collaborate between studios, I think, is, I don't know how much you guys have done this yet, but if it's all interoperable, there is a, becomes a very interesting incentive to collab, create collaboration, incentivize collaboration across games, across your portfolio mm -hmm. in a way that is not possible by someone like Stillfront. I mean, we've worked with a lot of the teams there and they are very much siloed in many, in many ways. I think that it's interesting to see how that may not be the case for you guys. Um, yeah, well, we're hoping, I mean, part of, part of the idea of, of thinking about oper interoperability was that we all know it's going to be hard. It's very yeah. hard, yeah. and and so the best the best way that we can encourage it is, of course, to encourage it in house first right. amongst our different studios, um, and then through our investing activity where we invest in companies and you know in in lots of other game studios too, and and we encourage them. Hey, you know we've got all of these great games. You know we've got the Sandbox and F1 Delta Time, etc. And would you mind, you know, considering interoperating your content with some of these games because we can offer you direct access to all these studios um, as an incentive, you know, to to work together. Hopefully, we can foster more of that cooperation. Yeah. Cool. Uh, we're running close to time, so I want to ask you one. Oh, there's actually two I want. Okay, so um, actually, we should have talked about this early. Uh, we'll just go ahead to the last question. So, um. What are either interesting projects or games or macro trends in the Web3 space that you think our listeners should keep an eye on? Hmm. That's a big question. Um, yeah, that's a That's big why it's question. a sign-off question. Um, so I think the big thing, I think there, there's an interesting trend that I've been following for a while, which, um, you know, we're dipping our toes in the water. Um, we have a studio called Gamey, um, and they're on... They're doing mobile Web3 apps, um, and it's basically a um, ad-supported business that includes a play-to-win model or play-to-earn model now, um, where you can earn blockchain rewards um, based on playing casual games. And the idea there is to try to figure out, um, try to figure out a way to onboard casual mobile content into Web3 because most people think that. NFTs in Web3 only work well for mid and hardcore games that have strong collectability aspects. Right. Um, but I think there are other models that can be innovated. Um, and, and cracking that code, I think, is interesting because if you can, then you can also publish at scale because something like what we've done at GameE is actually a generic solution. Interesting. So basically just brightening the model. Brightening broadening the model for what you think can be a successful web through game and how do you get to a massive to a game that fits massive scale and the ability to go broad with your marketing it sounds like yes yeah so for example you know a, a lot of game companies have used skills in in the mm -hmm. with a z so in the sorry. past and uh and 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 that's a particular type of model Mm -hmm. But it's also a model that's conducive to transitioning to a Web three model and mm -hmm. replacing right. it with a web, with Web three infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a few products that have. Um, we had one on the the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Punch Games. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with them, um, but yeah, that ostensibly that's that's one of a couple I've seen of essentially like skills 
on, mm -hmm. on the blockchain with a mm -hmm. casual rewards uh, competitive ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Well, because also it changes going back to esports. I mean, esports on blockchain is incredible because it changes the whole model. Basically, because you you go from a sponsorship model um, or an advertising model to a to a winning model, and to the win, yeah. to the idea that you're just literally the best player wins, you know, and you you can be anywhere in the world with an internet connection. You don't even need to have a bank account, <laughs> right? And you can be getting paid. Yeah, I mean that's a fascinating fascinating space to explore. Well, Robbie, this has been a really really enlightening conversation. I wish we had another hour because it's you know I think we can continue to pick your brain for for a while to come. Um, but we are close to time. And so we're going to pivot to our last section, which is app of the week. Uh, Robbie, did you bring an app this week? I brought an app this week, um, although it's kind of a boring and slightly That's expensive totally one. Um, <laughs> but it's it's me getting out of my comfort zone. Um, I'm experimenting with superhuman. Nice. Um, and ah. if there's anything sacred in my workflow, given my age, it's email. Um, and, uh, and because despite how many telegram groups I'm in and all these kind of things, I, email is still my go-to communication medium for working. Right. Um, and yeah, so trying something completely new with it is, is very much out of my comfort zone. So that's my app of the week. Is it, does it work? I mean, I'm a Gmail addict, right? I'm trying to understand how much incremental, I have a friend who works there and he, he raves about it, but is it good? Yes, seeing? but it requires, it's very, it's an interesting process because they onboard you with a, with a human for half an hour to teach you a new way to approach doing email. And that's part of the secret sauce. Hmm. Interesting. So it's not just about new software. It's about teaching you a different philosophy of how to handle your email. Um, and so, yeah. Um, because the idea is this inbox zero idea so that every email should be dealt with, but dealt with doesn't mean responded to. It should be, you know, snoozed to a particular time or it should be handed off so, so that, you know, you can manage the flow um, yeah. because I, I'm one of those people who tends to get overwhelmed with volume. I can only imagine. That's super interesting. I, I didn't know about that human onboarding piece. That's fascinating. My friend yeah. runs that human onboarding team. Anyway, not about him. Oh. Um, cool. Well, uh, Warren, <laughs> do you have an app this week? Yeah. So, I mean, this is going to shock you guys, but I have a Web3 game this week. Uh, no. So uh, it's, it's part of, you know, we mentioned earlier, part of the the battle that we've been fighting here lately has been, you know, trying to work with with the, the, the Axie team and the, these platforms to understand how Web3 games can be accepted on mobile. Because uh, mm -hmm. as you said, Robbie, like for mass adoption, like we need to get on mobile. It's just mm -hmm. for people have no other gaming device. So one thing I've been researching is just the Web3 games that one way or another have made it onto mobile so far. And the one I downloaded this week that I'm going to start playing, I just started dabbling, is called Skyweaver. Um, I'm sure mm -hmm. you guys are both familiar with it. Horizon this games, one, yeah. Yeah, Horizon blockchain games. Um, are, are, do you invest in, are you an investor in them as well? Um, uh, no, we're not, but I know, I know okay. Michael quite well. Cool. Uh, so I'm excited to dig into this one. I'm a big uh, TCG player, uh, as as Xander knows. I well, I mean, we we met initially talking about Hearthstone Magic. I was a former like competitive Magic player, um, but uh, I, I have been since I discovered Web three gaming. I haven't been playing much of uh, digital Magic as I used to. I started playing Gods Unchained um, and Skyweaver as another uh, uh, looks like high quality I, I TCG. Hope, I hope you've played Splinterlands. No, I haven't yet. Oh um, my god. Okay, cool. That's Go on find the list. Splinterlands. All right. Yes. Future future app of the week. Um, but Skyweaver looks pretty good. Uh, a game designer that I know that's that's a, a strong designer that also worked on Magic uh, worked on this. 
Um, the the art is pretty solid. The UI is pretty mm. clean. Um, it it's, looks more comparable to Hearthstone for sure. Um, and so I'm very curious to understand how they've, um, I'm not deep enough yet, but it looks like there's basically parallel levels of play where you can have the same card in like a non-tradable way just within the free-to-play ecosystem, or you can, uh, this is kind of similar to Gods and Chain that you can also own a, a tradable NFT version of it. So I'm very curious to dig deeper in the game and explore its depth, but also to just understand how it was, uh, how it got through approvals on both uh, both, both hmm. platforms because trying I mean, to a see lot of time thinking about that <laughs> yeah who's who's sneaking through the cracks and how so we can start establishing a playbook for uh you know for future web three games yeah so, xander did you have an app this week i do so um my app this week is like the opposite of a web three game it is a game though which is uh, horizon forgotten west playing it on ps4 it's triple a game sony uh, in-house playstation exclusive and i gotta say i haven't played it on ps4 in like three years but it is so good the it's like action rpg gorgeous honestly the most the best looking cutscenes i've ever seen in a game it's it's absolutely gorgeous so much fun snappy controls cool world highly recommend playing it for anyone who wants to drop 60 bucks for an you know 30 or 40 hour gameplay experience really really solid game cool that's our app of the week robbie thank you so much for joining us uh if someone wants to get a hold of you uh, i'm sure you don't need more emails but if someone wants to get a hold of you or, <laughs> or uh, wants to find out more about Amoka brands uh, how can they do that uh no problem i'm on linkedin um or else twitter at view from hk um so yeah those are usually the places people find me awesome more do you want to take us out yeah, absolutely. So uh, as always, uh, the podcast this week was brought to you by the team at Uptick. And Robbie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's one of the conversations we've been most looking forward to. So uh, here at Uptick, we do two things. We basically have, have our growth services team, which is like our bolt-on growth marketing team handling the UA, the creative, the marketing analytics to grow games. And then we also have our uh, Uptick platform, which has uh, automation tools for ASO, for UA, uh, and in production this year, we're actually building out the first kind of cross-platform measurement to unify uh, to unify measurement from traditional free-to-play and blockchain ecosystems for a lot of the upcoming Web3 uh, games that we're working on. So it's a super fun team to be a part of because we work on both the tech and the, the in-the-field side, getting the work done. And if it sounds like any of that stuff could be useful to you, we love to talk and learn about new projects, meet new teams. Just uh, reach out to us at uptick.com. That's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Awesome. Talk soon.